Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and your favourite show of the week, Listener Questions. You've been sending us your questions in your droves at totalsoccershow.com slash questions. And today we're fielding inquiries about female managers, soccer cities that suck, and an 11 consisting of fictional vampires. Not that there's any other kind, right guys, right? Anyway, I am regular human podcaster Ryan Bailey and joining Uh me today on this intrepid journey is a man whose timekeeping is better than an AFCON referee, I think, Taylor Rockingwell. Hello. Hello. I played a game of indoor last night and that story was the buzz of both indoor fields. Uh, Every referee talking about how they could have done a better job. Seems like AFCON has made it into uh, everyone's homes here in America. <laughs> this is Tunisia versus Mali. I'm referring to the ref uh, attempting to end the match early twice. No less than twice there. Um, Ridley, and then I think refer- publicly said, guys, I got money on this. Come on, we got to get this game over. <laughs> Allegedly. Taylor, I'm, I'm surprised by the, uh, the chat yeah. from the rec league referees because mm-hmm. in my experience, they're not the most engaged and interested. Certainly in the leagues I've played in, they do all want to blow up five minutes early. Uh, I, well, I think I think a lot of the conversation was rooted in like, if that guy's a referee, I could be a World Cup referee. But I, I think there was, I think both of the officials I spoke to are very serious about about refereeing, about officiating. They take it very seriously, and so I think there was a frustration that the that the gentleman in question was making them look bad. In the league I played in in Charlotte, if the ref took his hands out of his pockets, that was a good day. Um, <laughs> uh, by the way, your excellent Bundesliga podcast with Manuel Fate, which is on the uh, feed right now, listener, that clocks in at the exact length of that full-time um, Tunisia versus <laughs> yep. Mali Taylor. I actually, I actually did an experiment. If you sync them up, um, yep. the dark side of the moon and mm-hmm. uh, Tunisia versus Mali and, uh, and your podcast, they all sync together perfectly. Yeah, start start with the lion roar. It was planned that way. And then, uh, yeah, we wanted it's all one big global conspiracy for sure. That's what it was all intended to be. Indeed. Also, here is a man who'd never spent 25 million pounds on a striker who scored three goals this season if he had unlimited resources and was looking to escape a relegation battle. Graham Mugman, hello. (laughs) Hello. I might spend that amount on his uh, shirt, though. That that seems about right for me. Twenty five million. Yeah. So this is a Chris. I'm sure you spent that roughly on your shirt collection in your years, Graham. But uh, was that I'm not afraid- a wood joke? That was a how much money Graham spends joke. I thought that was definitely a wood joke. <laughs> Ryan's trying really hard, Taylor. Really hard. Well, uh, the wood jokes we were given uh, plentifully by Newcastle United's Twitter feed. I don't know if you saw, gents. They tweeted, "We've got wood." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like to think that's that is the only reason they did that transfer was just for the banter of that tweet. Yeah, uh, morning wood was trending on Twitter as the transfer was announced on this Thursday as we record. I don't know if you saw Graham, the we've got wood tweet got a response from the Mary Rose, which is uh, an official account for an old wooden ship, uh, not called diversity. <laughs> it's called the Mary Rose, uh, and they said we've got wood. They replied, not as much as we have. They're an old wooden ship, isn't that? It's not. You know, you, you used to get good old banter in the 1600s. I say, Graham. Oh, yeah, Twitter corporate banter is my favorite sort of banter. That's, that's the good stuff right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brands and tourist attractions bantering each other. Exactly. Uh, yeah, a Saudi-owned club talking to a boat from 400 years ago. It's what, it's what we tune on to Twitter for, basically. Uh, we're completing our lineup today is a man who's always more clutch than an Alexis Sanchez 120th minute cup winner. Joe Lowry, hello, sir. Oh, that game was beautiful for a whole host of reasons. I think my favorite reason being Matteo Benetti's call of Weston McKinney's headed goal, a star-spangled banger. 
it, it's a great call. Part of me wishes <laughs> that it had actually been a banger. It it really wasn't. But it's a it's like a phenomenal call and a really really good turn of phrase from Benetti. Uh, and and then you got the Alexis Sanchez winner for Inter. So it it was all sort of for naught. But yeah, man, that uh, what was it? The Supercoppa? There was like two different yeah. Italian Cup competitions happening at the same time, and uh, it gets a little confusing. Yeah, so yesterday was... we had AFCON, we had Premier League, uh, the League <laughs> Cup, the Spanish Super Cup, uh, and the Italian Super Cup. A lot to keep up with. But Joe, you raise a good point about uh, Benetti. We're going to have to message him because I want to know how long he had that line in his locker. Like, has he had it for several <laughs> months? Did he just wait for the right time? Or was it spur of the moment? Can you imagine if he dropped that? I don't think he was calling this game because it was a Champions League game. But if someone had dropped that on McKenney's banger against Barcelona at the Camp Nou... That would have been just perfection. But, I mean, man, still a great call and a pretty exciting game, too. Imagine he'd saved that up and it had been disallowed by VAR. <laughs> he'd used it on a disallowed goal. How gutted he would have been. <laughs> Thankfully. Oh, Nobody oh, likes boy. a disallowed banger, Graham. Star-spangled no. or otherwise. Uh, Graham, also, as I mentioned, the Spanish Super Cup, uh, one of the, I guess we call them semi-finals in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. It was a Classico yeah, sure. on Wednesday evening. <laughs> um, Barcelona versus Real Madrid. Uh, did you catch that one, Graham? I did. There was a lot of football happening, as you say, on that, on that night. It was virtually impossible for me to keep track of the big game of that evening, which was West Ham Norwich in the Premier League. Yeah. Uh, that was the one we were all keeping an eye on. It was a good game. In Saudi Arabia, of course, it was in Saudi Arabia. Why? Where else would it be? Mm-hmm. But um, I thought Barcelona played a pretty decent game, given that they are uh, <laughs> a mess at the moment. Uh, and Vinicius and Benzema showed up and did what they do. So it pretty much went to script, other than Barcelona were slightly better than I think we all expected them to be. Indeed. I will tell you what, gents, Eden Hazard was an unused substitute in that particular game, which leads us nicely, segue time, into our first question from Brian Hansen. He says, watching Eden Hazard's career decline as injuries and age have robbed him of his quickness, are there any notable examples of players who've reinvented their game to prolong their careers and remain at a high level? This is a great question from Brian Taylor. Uh, The name that immediately springs to mind is Mr. Cristiano Ronaldo, who we know started off as a tricky little winger and has converted himself into an out-and-out person who doesn't do much running. (laughs) (laughs) That is the official position, I believe. Yeah, that's that's a great shout. And there are a lot of players who move positions that are sort of organic changes. There's a lot of wide attackers who became forwards and forwards who became wide attackers. Thierry Henry, definitely in that list. And I think there's a lot of mobility when it comes to fullbacks becoming wingbacks, becoming wingers, as was the case for, say, Gareth Bale. That would be uh, one of the ones that I thought of. Uh, became a very good wide attacker after starting at fullback and then switched sports entirely and went to golf. That's a big uh, career <laughs> change. Um, I believe the Michael Cox Tactics podcast had a very similar question because I saw people tweeting about Alan Smith today, about him changing positions, Alan Smith or Smudge, played 170 plus games as a striker for Leeds, converted into a a holding midfielder, I believe, by Sir Alex Ferguson. And that is another sort of trend in my mind is attacking players moving further back as they age. Maybe there's a little bit less running. Maybe they have a little bit more time on the ball. Um, and and a big one on that front would be Andrea Pirlo, who I remembered as being like this very creative attacking force further up the pitch. And then as he aged, he moved further back. That not really the case. It seems to be that when he was on loan at Brescia, he started at Brescia, then was on loan there from Inter. They had another guy by the name of uh, Roberto Baggio starting for them in their number 10. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the Majestic Ponytail, I believe it is. Uh, 
And he was playing as the number 10, so Pirlo had to do more defensive or play a little bit deeper, and that is where he found a lot of success. Carlo Ancelotti, watching his games, decided to sign him for Milan, and that is where he ended up playing. So I would say Andrea Pirlo would be one for me of a more creative midfielder that was moved further back and had plenty of success. Gareth Bale uh, as a fullback moving to an attacker, and then to golf having a bunch of success, and Alan Smith, (laughs) Smudge, having some success at Manchester United. He is, I'm going to admit, he is a player that I had completely erased from my mind, Alan Smith. Yeah. Uh, I had forgotten that he, he was a thing. He was pretty yep. decent for a while. He, he was, uh, did, he, did he not suffer like a really bad leg break and yes. John Arnarisa smashed a free kick into him and that, that unfortunately kind of Yes. Uh, yeah, a compound fracture, I believe, that took him out for a while. Yeah. 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 He, he went out with a girl in an office in an office I worked in once. Fun fact that I didn't need to tell you at this point, juncture, but I did. <laughs> did he also live in your street? <laughs> yeah. Right right by Christian Benteke, right? And uh, uh, yeah. every other soccer player? I can tell you how that girl abused his trust by reading all his text messages to everybody in the office. Um, also, with Andrew Pirlo, Taylor, uh, Carlo Ancelotti, he, he said of him, of quote, he changed my career, putting me back in front of the defence. We had some unforgettable moments. We had a magnificent pass together, did Pirlo and Ancelotti. He thanks him for reinventing him, moving him further back in the pitch. Uh, Graham, another name that springs to mind for me, perhaps we could mention Ryan Giggs, who went from... Mm-hmm equally a tricky winger to a more central role as he moved into his 50s and 60s just up until he was cancelled. Yeah, (laughs) right, yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, there is a common theme here. I kept coming up with Manchester United players who'd played under Sir Alex Ferguson. So Ronaldo is obviously one who's already been mentioned. Alan Smith, you've mentioned Giggs there. Another one would be Scholes, who was maybe the first one that came to my mind. He was an attacking midfielder in the early stages of of his career. He even played as a left winger for England, which um, was maybe not the best idea given his skill set, but nonetheless it tells you how mobile he was. And then later in his career, he became a deep-lying playmaker, um, basically because his legs wouldn't carry him around the pitch like they used to. In my unpopular opinion about Scholes, well, maybe it isn't an unpopular opinion, but I thought he was at his best, his most influential in those latter years of his career, in the years just before he actually retired, when he was in that deep lying position and he was kind of spraying the passes. He always had that that brilliant sprayed pass out diagonal, mm. but he just made such good use of it from a really deep role. And, and I thought that was the best version of schools. That was the one that I had the most appreciation for anyway. And then other examples, um, similar sort of players that, started in a more attacking position and then just slowly moved back. One was uh, Lothar Matthias, the Germany legend who started out as an attacking midfielder. Then he dropped into central midfield and then ultimately he finished his career as a centre-back. He played as a sweeper in the 1999 Champions League final. Taylor, you might remember that one. Um, so there is, a common th- there is a common theme of players starting in attacking positions and then, and then slowly slipping back. One exception to that, sorry to hog the mic for so long but one exception to that I found was Raul Raul Gonzalez so as I say common theme of player who start in attacking positions drop into more conservative roles but he's the exception to this as we all know he started out as a striker he was one of the best strikers around for a long time Real Madrid's top scorer until Ronaldo surpassed him however he actually took up a attacking midfield position in his latter years for Schalke um, basically, Schalke wanted him in there for his left foot, left foot and uh, his ability to pick a pass. But as I say, normally attacking midfielders will drop deeper into central midfield or they'll become poachers. And Raul sort of bucked that trend a little bit. He did indeed. He rode the roller coaster, Graham, of uh, oh, life. Very good. Um, Joe, 
uh, one that struck me from MLS. I don't remember a fella called Bastian Schweinsteiger. Mm -hmm. When he went to try and win the World Cup with Chicago, he uh, dropped back to centre-back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a real trend, and we've kind of hit on some of these things. There's a trend of moving deeper as you lose some of that athleticism. And, and Bastian Schweinsteiger had certainly lost a, a good step or two or ten in his time in Major League Soccer. And so it makes sense, at least in, in some degree, to have those players move deeper and have a player like Schweinsteiger try to control possession from the middle of the back line, you reduce the, the lateral ground that he has to cover, even though he still has to, to move forward and backward vertically. But I think there's a lot of logic in that. A couple other names that I thought of. This one is kind of cheating. David Alaba sort of shifting to center back. And I say it's kind of cheating because David Alaba has played pretty much every position over the course of his career between Austria and Bayern Munich and now Real Madrid. But he was, to be fair to myself here, I guess, he was a left back at Bayern full-time, almost full-time, and now he's shifted to a full-time center back for Real Madrid. So I think there is something to that. He has lost some athleticism. We've seen him play a little bit deeper before, and I think it makes sense for him. And it, and it is a way to extend his career because it means he doesn't have to do as much running. So I'm giving myself that one. The other one that I found that I had also sort of forgotten about is Mikel Antonio shifting to striker. When he signed for West Ham from Nottingham Forest in 2016, he was a wide attacker. He was a winger. He, he played some wide, out wide for West Ham, played some right back as well, played some left back, I think, too. But then David Moyes moved him to striker. I think back in 2020 after lockdown with Sebastian Hilaire injured, Moyes made that move and He's been a success as a nine. He's a big, strong player. He's got athleticism, technical quality, can play with his back to goal, can face up and drive towards goal. He's a dangerous player, as the United States learned firsthand against Jamaican <laughs> World Cup qualifying in November. I mean, this guy is a goal scorer, and seeing him play in that spot, I think, makes a lot of sense. So those are a few other names I mentioned. I do, I do think it's interesting. Really, maybe there's some minor skill tweaks where players are refining one part of their game or, or growing one part of their game. But I think really it's telling that all of our answers were more positional, like like players changing positions rather than a winger reinventing his skill set to become an even more effective winger or a six reinventing their skill set to become a more effective six. I just think it speaks to how hard it is to play soccer at a high level, first of all, and how hard it is to change what you do. It's a lot easier to change where you are than what you do on the field, and I, I think it makes it challenging for players who want to continue to play in a single spot and change up exactly what they're doing. I don't know how feasible that is. So all of our answers, I think, are virtually all of our answers had players just shifting around on the field to continue to remain successful. That's that's an interesting point, Joe. Maybe we can pinpoint the moment when Arjen Robin decided to cut in and have a shot on his left foot to reinvent <laughs> himself. Maybe it might be. Do. do you ever think Arnie Robin has ever used his right foot? I think he was just <laughs> born only walking on his left foot and doing everything with his left foot. Yeah, just for standing on. Uh, right, Brian, thank right. you very much for that question. An excellent one it was. Calvin Lazum asks, which woman, manager, coach, or player, would you like to see as a men's club manager? Taylor Rockwell, I'll come to you mm -hmm. first, sir. Sure. Um, I, I think this question revealed to me that we don't have a ton of like well-known, high-profile women's coaches at, at present. And I think that is... An issue. I think also a lot of women's coaches that have like been around for a very long time are coaching in the college ranks. I don't know if college is the best jump to make to the pro level. Similarly, I think when you've been an international manager exclusively, it can be a challenge to then transition to club. With that said, my uh, selection for a current coach would be Serena Wiegmann, uh, current England women's manager, former Netherlands women, uh, FIFA best coach uh, two different times. 
but she always has seemed very good from the tactics side, but also getting the best out of uh, big personalities. I think that's why she's moved to England, and I think we'll have success there, and I would love to see what she can do after that. Uh, and then for active players, I just really like Becky Sauerbrunn a whole lot, and she seems like a very good veteran presence, a, a good skipper, but also seems to read the game very well and be just making little adjustments, having the line step a little bit more aggressively or sit off a little bit more or making sure people are tracking the way they need to. I think she does a lot of in-game management that has me thinking she will be a good manager down the road. And I think with her profile and the success she has had, she would command uh, a bit more respect if she were to move into the men's side of things. So I think that could be a very interesting one as well. Uh, Graham, the name that strikes me as perhaps being the most likely to make that transition at the moment is Emma Hayes. Um, yep. Regularly does punditry in the UK and is generally much more insightful than anyone else uh, on the panel, any given 100%. panel that she's on. Uh, four-time Women's Super League winner with Chelsea, also managed in the US uh, with the Chicago Red Stars, and the Long Island Lady Riders. The Long Island Lady Riders. Yeah. That, uh, that's quite a name. It's quite Are a handle, familiar with. Are you familiar with the Long Island Rough Riders? Because that will make more sense, maybe. Uh, it was that they are now renamed the Long Island Rough Riders, but they were the Lady Riders, Taylor. Yeah, I, I'm going to assume because there was the Rough Rough Riders who used to play the Richmond Kickers. Uh, I think the Teddy Roosevelt reference there, and I'm going to assume that was their women's team. And then they realized that maybe that didn't sound so great. So they, <laughs> they just had them both be named the same thing. Yeah, they, they maybe found something wrong with the title Long Island Lady Riders for some reason, Taylor. And they changed it to Rough Riders. But here we are. Um, but uh, Emma Hayes Graham was linked uh, famously, famously with the AFC Wimbledon job last year. And she uh, turned it down in no uncertain terms, uh, viewing League One as a step down from her job mm -hmm. in the WSL. Perhaps rightfully so. Um, so, Graham, your thoughts on any potential women's coaches or players or managers you'd like to see make that transition? Yeah, so Hayes is the obvious answer, as as you see here, certainly from a, a British perspective. I actually get the feeling she will get a shot at management in the men's game at, at some point in her career. As you, as you say, she's already had offers from the men's game. You know, it probably won't be the Chelsea job, even though whenever that job does come up, she does actually tend to get mentioned. I, I don't know whether it'll be a Premier League club. That's not me saying it shouldn't be a Chelsea or a Premier League club. I'm, I'm, I'm just uh, surveying the lay, in the lay of the land, but I can envisage a club maybe lower down the ladder giving her a job and the, the Euros was a, a watershed moment for her in terms of her, her public image as you say Ryan frequently one of the best pundits around she's such a sharp tactical mind she's a very very good communicator which I think is everyone knows she's a good tactical mind but that's the key is she doesn't just have the, the mind she communicates it very well which obviously lends mm -hmm. itself to being a very good coach and there's no reason why she shouldn't get an opportunity in the men's game another one Another British name that came to mind was um, Casey Stoney. So maybe she doesn't have the, the public image and reputation of, of Hayes, who is a, a bit of a household name now. But I'd like to see, see Stoney get an opportunity in the men's game. She obviously has experience as a, a player at the top level, 130 caps for England. She's worked as an assistant international level. Um, so she's got that perspective as well. She's been a player manager at Chelsea for a spell, but most recently the job she did in establishing Manchester United as a, as a team. Hmm. My United didn't have a women's team before Casey Stoney. Not only did she establish them in the, the second tier in England, took them up, she then established them in the top tier, did an incredible job. I think she speaks with authority. She's obviously, obviously now at the Santiago Wave, who have big ambitions. They've poached her for that job, um, so that tells you a little bit about how highly she is rated. As I say, she speaks with authority, commands respect of players, knows how to set up a team well. So she would be another one. And then a, a Scottish name, 
would be, if we're looking at a player, would be Kim Little. So Kim Little's only 31, but she's only just retired from the Scotland national team, which was a, a, a big blow. I think a lot of people were taken by surprised by that. But she just has a natural authority about her. Whenever I hear her speak, and especially in among teammates, Scotland teammates, she just always seems like a coach in waiting. So there's a bit of an unknown there. She isn't a coach. I don't know whether she would um, necessarily make a good coach, but it seems like she would. So maybe she's one. And in Scotland, there is a precedent. Shelley Kerr, the former national team manager, um, had a, a job at the University of Stirling men's team. So there's a little bit of a precedent there in Scottish football that mm. I think Kim Little in time might be able to follow. Good shout, Graham. Casey Stoney, by the way, is one of the coolest names in soccer. Is it not? I think it's always really, it sounds like some really cool Californian surfer or something. And then you look up and she's from Essex and it always takes you by surprise. <laughs> yeah, it's almost as cool as uh, Taylor Rockwell. Almost, almost as cool as Arizona almost. Joe as well. Arizona wow. Joe, what, what, what say you on this question? So I've got a couple names. Emma Hayes was far and away my first pick for this question and for all the reasons that you guys have already mentioned. So I've got a couple of players that I think would make good or at least interesting coaches. The first one is Midge Purse, who uh, is a Harvard grad hmm. in addition to being a U.S. women's national teamer. She's very, very bright, I think has a really interesting and engaging personality and would be someone I'd be very intrigued to see coach, whether that's really at any level. And there's still a ways left in her playing career before that happens. But I would be curious to see what she was like as a coach. The other name that I thought of is Formiga, Brazilian international legend who played at the international level for 26 years, was born in Brazil at a time when it was illegal for women to play football has been to more Olympics than I can count, has done more things in her career than I can count and more things than I will ever do. She's a legend and an incredible player. I think her presence and her experience is something that would genuinely garner respect from from both genders. I, I, I can really see that being a huge positive. I think I think she would be fascinating to see in a coaching world. I don't know how it would go. I don't know if either Formiga or Midge Purse has any interest in doing that, but man, that would be fun. That would be fun indeed. Thank you very much, gents. And thank you, Calvin, for the question. More listener questions when we return after these very important messages. Stay tuned. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We're taking a question now from Jackie Choi. Hey, Jackie. She asks, why is the lettering of players' names different on Premier League jerseys versus championship jerseys? Why isn't there a standard font used across tiers or even leagues? An interesting question there. Uh, Graham, I, the thing I'd say from the outset here is it is standardised across the English Football League, the EFL. Uh, it does use mm -hmm. the same font 
all across all of its uh, leagues. The Premier League uses the same font across its league. And uh, that's basically the answer to the question. But I think what what people maybe don't realise is the Premier League isn't part of the Football League system. It's a breakaway league. So the Premier League was founded in 1992. Um, I'll read this blurb out. Following the decision of clubs in the Football League First Division to break away from the Football League, which was founded you know, 1888, and take advantage of lucrative TV deals, basically. So it used to be the Football League was uh, Division 1, Division 2, Division 3, Division 4. Then a breakaway league started at the top that has its own rules and its own font on the back of its jerseys, Graham. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The short answer is that they are two different bodies, the championship belonging to the EFL, as you say, and and the Premier League being its its own organisation. I, I do wonder if this question has been prompted by seeing the teams play each other in the FA Cup. Mm. So the FA Cup is obviously, a, as the name suggests, is a competition controlled by the English FA, not controlled by the EFL or the, or the Premier League. And so teams in that competition have to wear their own typeface that's supplied by the by the manufacturer and i think that's one of the best things about the fa cup i realize i'm probably in the minority and thinking this is one of the best things about the fa cup but one of the best things about the fa cup for me is seeing which clubs have their own bespoke typeface and what which ones <laughs> just get the standard typeface from the kit manufacturer so Leeds were the ones I noticed in this year's FA Cup third round. They have this excellent highlighter yellow typeface that I had never seen them wear before. Maybe they have worn it in another competition and I've just not seen it. But yeah, that, that I love that about the FA Cup scene, which teams have the, have their own bespoke typeface. Yeah, yellow on white doesn't sound like the most visible uh, colour option there, Graham. No, but it, it weirdly had kind of like navy blue outline around the around the edges, so it actually did stand out really well. I re- I really liked it. I thought it worked well with the kit. It was better than having black or white, which tends to be the Premier League will have. It's all the same design, but it's they have do have different colours, so it tends to be like white, black, navy blue, and that is pretty much a red. I think they have a red. That's pretty much your lot. You have to pick from their standard colours, and if yep. it doesn't match the colour of your kit, then tough luck. That's so. right. I prefer the bespoke ones. Yeah, and all the EFL, EFL excuse me, kits, they have uh, a, the EFL logo on the number and the first letter of each name, if you look closely, it has a little squiggle, a little logo. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, it's the logo That's for mind. mind, the EFL's charity partner, the mental health charity partner that they partner with. They've been doing that for a few seasons now. And it, it, it actually looks pretty cool. And I, I, I like the lettering on the EFL kits, which is kind of stencil look this year. They kind of changed it a little bit. Uh, and Taylor, go, going back to uh, Graham's comment on the, the uh, when Premier League teams play outside side of the Premier League and the, and the kits they use. That reminds me of watching Man United in the Champions League in the late 90s when they used to they brought out specific Champions League kits. Uh, that was when they started doing that. And then they had their own fancy fonts on their, on their squad numbering. I always used to think, that's very exciting. We know they're in Europe. We know it's a big Tuesday <laughs> night when Man United whip out the kits that they don't wear every weekend. Yeah, that's how you know. They're fancy. They've got the same sponsors and they cost the same amount of money, but they're slightly different and therefore even fancier. <laughs> that's right. I feel personally attacked. <laughs> I just I just want listeners to know like how happy this question made Graham. If, if you guys oh, yeah. want to make Graham happy, because, you know, Graham, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sort of under the impression that that doesn't happen a whole lot for you. If listeners want to make <laughs> Graham happy, send him and send us... Oh, wait, it's cool. <laughs> Send us questions about jerseys, about typefaces, about, I mean, about Billy Gilmore. Brown room, sauce. But those are the, brown the big sauce. three. Yeah, brown sauce, brown sauce mutton yeah. pies. Like, just uh-huh. hit at Graham's five different love languages that I just listed, and he will have the best day. 
Graham, yeah. tell the listener about your coffee table book. Well, I've actually got two. <laughs> two coffee table books. It's, one is an updated version. I actually have forgotten the name of it. It's called... I'm going to have to tweet it out because I've forgotten the name of it. But basically, it's a, it's a giant coffee table book of um, f- typefaces and fonts from through the years and how they've all evolved from the kind of stencil Real Madrid one in the early 2000s oh, when yeah. they had Zidane and Figo, which is a, is a classic, all the way up to like the more modern Premier League in England ones. And, and it's, it's fantastic. It's right up my street and I've got two of them because I got the updated version as well when it came out a few years after the first one. I just picture you going to bed at night with your little coffee table book of um, fonts on typefaces on the back of shirts and just excitedly peeling the pages, Graham. Oh, what, yeah. what a life, what a life. That is pretty accurate. <laughs> and I should say, um, in terms of Premier League nerdy stuff like that, um, 93-94 was when squad numbers were introduced in the Premier League. So before that, it was just 1-11 to 11 and, you know, no, no one had a designated number. Um, and that soon, that came later on in the championship, I think even early 2000s, when, uh, when they uh, brought in squad numbers permanently. And having those 90s kits, as I did, because, Joe, I'm very old, in case I've made that clear on this podcast before, um, they had that sort of blocky standard font on all the Premier League shirts. And it was like... The material was really thick. It was like, almost like velvet. The numbers yeah, were made of. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Must have been yeah. quite. It was like, it was like a velour or velour. That's right. You say that. Yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Strange. Thank you very much, Jackie, for the question. Here's one from John Huffstetler. Thank you for this one, John. Why aren't the Birmingham clubs, Birmingham City, Aston Villa and West Brom, better? Most big cities have good teams and Birmingham is the second largest city in the UK. And a follow-up from John asking, around the world, are there other big cities with soccer um, soccer teams that have lousy soccer? I.e. Chicago, says John. Uh, Graham, uh, John is quite right saying that uh, Birmingham is England's second city. Mm -hmm. I've looked up the numbers, a three and a half million metro population. Uh, Those teams probably should be better when you consider maybe the the weighting that the London teams have, uh, certainly in the top division. Um, Maybe looking at Aston Villa, they have a storied past in Europe, but they are. That is certainly the past. Birmingham, um, briefly in the Premier League, but now have absolutely no money and not doing wonderfully in the championship, even though they are both big teams and both well supported. Yeah, so the first thing I think should be noted is Aston Villa in the past have been a good team. As you say, they they have a, a storied history. They're, they're former European Cup winners. They won the league title in the 80s in the inaugural Premier League season. They finished second. So they have been an elite level team in the past. But I do recognise the point that they and the other Birmingham teams have not been at that level for a long time. And I had to do a lot of thinking about this question because I don't think there's a particularly obvious answer as to why they're not better. And I've, I've come up with a theory, right? You can shoot this down if, if you like. But I wonder if the case of Villa in particular, so I'm going to use them as a, as a case study. I wonder if the case of Villa was a case of poor timing. So Villa were fairly competitive in the first phase of the Premier League up until the millennium. I looked at their league finishes. It was rare that they finished lower than eighth up until that time. Then the, the, the periods where the Premier League really exploded in terms of TV money and revenue was the middle of the 2000s. And you had teams like Arsenal and Chelsea and United. They started to break away a little bit at that time. Up until then, it was possible for teams like Newcastle and Blackburn. And it, it, they weren't completely untouchable, the best teams. Obviously, United were dominant, but teams did join them on occasion to in being the, the dominant force. But then you started to have a breakaway between the big three and that period coincided with Villa suffering a really poor time. So they had a, they finished 10th in 2005, 16th, and then 11th. 
there was a bit of a resurgence under Martin O'Neill, but to me, it felt like the club in that period had sort of been left financially behind. And once Villa missed that train to grow organically, they were left stranded much like Newcastle United, who, despite their obvious size and stature as a club, they've needed, you know, Saudi money to lift themselves, which obviously hasn't happened yet, but we're expecting that to happen. You know, the size of a club or a city or a fan base, unfortunately, in the modern age, in the Premier League, doesn't really count for all that much. You know, some clubs like Liverpool and Manchester United have made their advantage count over decades, and they've created a gulf that is now unbridgeable. They can't really be caught in that regard. But if you haven't done that by now, you're pretty much going to need an oligarch or a tech tycoon to buy you and lift you up to that level. So it just feels like the Birmingham clubs, I'm, I'm using Villa as a case study, but it applies to all of them really, have sort of been left behind. And so the size of the club now in the modern age doesn't, it's not that relevant in terms of how good the team is on the pitch. Yeah, I think Graham covered a lot of the bases there. I would echo them and add to them by saying, I also think for the longest time, football clubs were dependent on match day revenue or completely dependent on match day revenue. And so having those those big stadia with the big crowds coming in allowed you to have a little bit of financial flexibility. I think as we get more TV rights and there's more commercial, uh, a larger commercial side, more commercial marketing and things like that that money is a little, bit, a little bit more imbalanced. And I think for the Birmingham clubs, there just hasn't been as much of it. There hasn't been as much foreign investment in them, uh, at least until recently. And I think my weird theory on this, uh, to steal a line from everyone's favorite Marvel character, Vision, uh, strength invites challenge. And if you have four Birmingham clubs or West Midlands clubs that are good but not great and at sometimes all four of them have been in the championship and sometimes at least a few of them have been in the Premier League but none of them are Manchester United or Liverpool or Arsenal you don't have that massive club that everyone is chasing and trying to kind of bring back down or catch up to it feels like they all kind of stay in the same level and there isn't that invitation for challenge because it ends up being more open and so you don't get that standout club that kind of pushes it to the next level. Taylor, to challenge you and perhaps Graham's point a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, are we giving them a pass by suggesting they don't have as much investment as maybe other teams? I mean, Randy Lerner, billionaire, Carsten Young at Birmingham, billionaire. Mm -hmm. They They haven't spent City money, though. They haven't. They've not not spent uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions in recent seasons. They have had some investment, though. I think there are, there are that's a that's a valid point, Ryan, and I should have clarified more. I, and Graham already did that. Like it is the money spent, and you could have the investor who buys the club but seems right. to see it as an investment versus the person who buys a club and sees it as an investment that they're then going to fund to be even better and more successful. I think John Henry is a good example of that at Liverpool, whereas the Glazers, maybe less less so at Manchester United, a rare example of spending and also not working out. Uh, so you can have the kind of variations there. Um, I- I'm going to ask a, a question that will make me unpopular potentially but like i have long heard that birmingham is not the place that people necessarily want to be daryl uh daryl from uh the west midlands would talk about how people used to like not really love the west midlands accent and it was not the desirable location to live in england not saying that newcastle and manchester are particularly desirable but i think you then if you have the history of success in manchester the history of success in liverpool it makes them more desirable. Am I speaking out of turn here? Am I speaking um, out of school? 
there, there is a school of thought there, Taylor. My my comeback to Graham originally was to, uh, was to posit that everything above London sucks, and that's why Birmingham sucks, <laughs> um, which is a simple way of putting Yours it. Yours was said less delicately. <laughs> I mean, you don't need to travel above Watford, everybody. Let's just be honest. Um, There's nice places everywhere. I know. Hey. Like when I, but, um, when I hear when I hear Manchester, like that, what yeah, you said, exactly. to, you're just echoing what a lot of people say in the in the common narrative about Manchester. But I've, I think Manchester's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> there's nice bits of Manchester, like around Cheshire area, and I'd imagine Birmingham. Like, there's a lot of countryside around Birmingham as well. So yeah. I don't know that area too well, but I, I can imagine there's a lot of nice bits around Birmingham. Oh, I'm, I'm referring to weather, right? Or to Graham. I'm like, it's mostly everything I hear is people complaining about the rain and the gloom and the cold. I mean- that's, that's just, just this country. That's just the UK, yeah. I don't think you can escape that. Um, I, I was being facetious with my uh, North of London comment, to be fair. I actually was in Birmingham two months ago to visit a player who may or may not be coming to Charlotte. We'll have to see on that one. Um, but I was taken aback at how nice it was, if I'm perfectly honest, uh, because it is, it, it's, it's gotten a lot better. It's like Barney's Block. Walk it on back. It Walk it gone. on back, right? No, Ryan. I'm being serious. It's like nice <laughs> canals. I'm being sincere. It's it's on. It's a canal. You know, Peaky Blinders. Uh, you know, you've got those canals. So I went on a run that was like, you know, just all along these really beautiful canals. Like it's really, um, it's been developed very well, Birmingham. And as you say, Graham, it is part of the Black Country that you can you can go further out, and it, it does get quite beautiful as well. It is maybe you refer to the accent there, Taylor. You've got that Aussie Osborne accent, which is a bit unavoidable. Yep. It's the second worst accent. In the UK, in my opinion, the first one is Somerset. Uh, I can get there later if you like. But um, uh, <laughs> maybe no, that- Daryl's Daryl's buddies were trying to teach me Birmingham slang, and it just get like it it kept devolving to like, why do you say that? I don't know. We just do. <laughs> like it was just so many <laughs> weird phrases and expressions that I was not quite prepared for. Good music though. Some good bands out of Birmingham. Oh, I'll, I'll give them that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, on the canals, uh, which I mentioned there, I ran under Black Sabbath Bridge, which is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> what about Electric Light Orchestra Bridge? Did they did they get one too or no? <laughs> I did not see ELO Bridge, but I will look out for it next time, Tay-Tay. Um, I didn't know they were from Birmingham. Je- uh, Jeff Lynn. There you go. Is he from Birmingham? Jeff, what's his face? Yeah, he is, isn't he? Jeff Lynn. Mm-hmm. Jeff, Judas Priest, also from Birmingham. You know, you, 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 got, you got some good ones in there. Indeed. We're going slightly off topic. Why don't we tackle... Are we? The, the, uh, maybe. <laughs> we should tackle the second part of John's question. I think this is interesting. Are there other cities, big cities in the world, which uh, suck at soccer? Uh, mm-hmm. The one... Uh, Joe, I'll come to you. The one that um, struck me is Berlin. Yep. Um, being, you know, fifth biggest population city in Europe. Uh, they've got the Olympic Stadium and they've got Hertha Berlin who play in that stadium. They've got Union Berlin who aren't traditionally a top flight team or haven't there have been the last few seasons but neither of those teams are world beaters berlin is not a world beating soccer city and yet it is a huge metropolis and i think there's a few others perhaps joe yeah berlin ryan are you reading my notes right now what is going on chicago is a really good one from john first of all that's a really great shot and there's maybe some other markets in well there are some other markets in major league soccer that you would hope would perform better although it is still somewhat early days really for every mls team even though there's a big discrepancy there uh, so Chicago is a, is a great shot from John Berlin. Ryan, to your point, is also a really, really good one. Union, uh, sorry, Union Berlin uh, is in I seventh get- in the Bundesliga right now, which is solid, right? That's a good position for them to be in. But between Union and, and Hertha, there hasn't been a ton of success from these professional soccer teams at the highest levels in Germany. So I, I think that's a really great shout. Another one that I was thinking about, and this is kind of a strange one, but maybe you guys will go with me on this, is Paris. 
Paris has obviously yep. PSG, yep. which is one of the three, five, seven biggest soccer teams in the world in terms of their financial cloud, in terms of the names they have. They're probably unrivaled. But outside of them, you're not looking at any real players in France. And you can probably even extend this conversation to other teams in other cities, excuse me, in France, Strasbourg perhaps, and, and there's others here too. Yeah. That, that don't have as much soccer might as you would first think. And there can be a whole bunch of reasons for that, right? Berlin is maybe the easiest example. You can see in relatively recent history some challenges there financially, economically, politically. There's all of these different reasons that span across these different cities. What happened in Berlin, Joe? Tell us. <laughs> Everybody knows that stuff. Everybody knows that stuff. But, I mean, there's there's challenges here, right? So I think it's a fascinating question to dig into what cities underperform, and then to even dive into maybe what some of those reasons are. Paris, to go back to that one, really doesn't seem to have, in large part, the soccer culture that a lot of other cities do in Europe. And so PSG being their top team is a little bit artificial. I don't think that's unfair to say at all. And so after that, you're looking at teams that, yes, certainly have a following, and yes, have passionate people behind them and working in them. But it's not the same as a lot of other cities around Europe. So, so and, Paris and Berlin and, and Chicago really are all, I think, ones yeah. that I had down. And and the weirdest thing about Paris for me as a, as a soccer city is, you're right, Joe, they don't have that soccer culture. But the the players that come out of yeah, all Paris of so good. It's like, yeah, like the whole French national team come out of Paris and a lot of the suburbs of Paris. And if you compare Paris to London, which both cities' metro areas are relatively similar. London's slightly bigger at 14 million, Paris is 13 million. And you look at how many clubs are in London and how many big clubs are in, in London. I'm not just talking about Arsenal and, and, uh, and Chelsea and Spurs and West Ham. You know, going further down the ladder, how many clubs are in London? I mean, Brentford is another London club in the Premier League at the moment. Um, where, where are those clubs in Paris? <laughs> it seems like they have one club that doesn't have a a particularly long history and certainly not a history of being successful until recently. It's a bit of a bizarre one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was trying to think of some others. Taylor, I don't know if you've got any others. Hamburg was one that maybe struck me. Um, Big population, 5 million metro population. Hamburg not exactly on the map in terms of winning major silverware. St. Petersburg for similar reasons. Uh, Anything else, Taylor? I mean, I think St. Petersburg have, have won the Russian League at least a few times, so I, I think. Suppose, but not. I think they're doing all right. Have a good history as well. Yeah. Um, but I think one thing that you all are talking about is something. I think it's in Soccernomics. They talk about this that for the longest time there was a very sustained chunk of time when capital cities were not where you went to find champions. And starting with Paris, that was when Lyon won like eight titles in a row. Lyon, not in Paris, obviously. Uh, But that was also with Bayern Munich being dominant in Germany as opposed to a club in Berlin. That was with Manchester United and Liverpool being very dominant in England at a time when London clubs less so. And even in Italy, you don't have the Rome clubs winning a ton of titles. You tend to have clubs in the north and occasionally one club in the south having more, more joy. So there was this idea that capital cities weren't where you went to find sustained success i guess spain would be the outlier there uh and london now obviously the only other one that i i saw uh this was not my own suggestion but i saw a couple people nominate in a similar uh discussion of this on reddit was plymouth which is apparently the largest city in england to never have a club in the top flight i've never been to plymouth i don't know if grandma ryan have i don't know if joe has but i will say that that was an interesting one for me plymouth 
I think uh, the city size is like 200,000 or so, but yeah. no uh, top flight club there. So that's that's interesting because I have this discussion. My, my wife's family are all from the southwest of England, not too far from Plymouth. And it, there is just a dearth of soccer there. There's, there's no yeah. teams. Everywhere else, there's loads. They've got like Yeovil and Plymouth and maybe a couple of others dotted around Exeter. But like in that southwest area, it seems... It's like the only area of the UK that isn't touched by soccer. It's quite, it's quite strange. Have you noticed that, Graham? Yeah, that's because they're all into surfing and tractors, though, aren't they? Yeah, farming. <laughs> their... Mainly, yeah. yeah. Surfing and tractors. It's a strange combination. <laughs> it's a wonderful <laughs> combo. You should try it sometime. Anyway, uh, John, thank you very much for the question there. A couple more after this short break. Back soon. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back taking your questions. Here's one from Cigar Sierra McGeary. Thank you for this one, Cigar. What are thoughts on the suggestion that national team coaches should be from the same country just as the players are cap-tied or need to be nationals? That coaches and technical staff should be treated no differently than players in international soccer. This is a really interesting one, Taylor, because on the one side, I think it it's fine that um, national team coaches don't have to be from the same nation because there's a definite there's there's a divide between them and the players. Mm-hmm. They're paid to be there, or they're paid richly to be there. Pay- players are only paid negligible expenses; they're not paid a lot, and there's a difference there. But I think I agree with the idea that the rules of the eligibility should apply to the manager as well. The manager is very important. They dictate what happens on the field. They make active decisions for the fate of a national team, and if we are to buy into this constraint that international soccer puts on teams that they have to be representing one's own nation, there's a nationalistic element to it, there's, there's an element of national pride there, then I kind of agree that the manager should be from the same nation. What do you think, Taylor? Uh, yeah, I don't think I agree. Um, I, I hear your arguments. I, I think a lot of it for me is just the idea that you should be able to do whatever you want to do. And if you want to bring in a foreign manager who has more experience or expertise, I think that makes sense. I think having to have a person be cap tied in some ways would even limit the ability of that manager to make those moves. So if there was a young Dutch manager who suddenly offered the opportunity to manage Curacao uh, because of that Dutch connection and he or she took it then that like removes them from eligibility to ever manage the Dutch national team, which I assume would be a more desirable position at some point. So I feel like it could limit ma- managerial ability or like limit the ability of soccer to kind of evolve and grow, because I do think you have to have foreign ideas take root if you want to replace or evolve uh, an existing system. And I think o- overall, I just like the idea of being able to have that flexibility. I struggle to think of a lot of times in which it's worked really well. That is the case. It does feel like the teams that tend to have the greatest success are managed by a person from that country. I think that's the case for pretty much every every team that's ever won the World Cup. 
and maybe for the Euros as well. But I do like the idea of having some flexibility there if you do want to bring in uh, a foreign manager or a manager who has less of a direct connection to that national team. And my final thing would be, I think it always just relates to culture and your ability to understand and appreciate the culture of the country you're managing. And if if a manager is going in and saying, this is how it has to be, if you're trying to have... I don't know, very specific rules and time constraints and you're managing Brazil with Neymar, I doubt that's going to work very well. I think you have to reflect the society in which you're trying to manage. And I think sometimes that can be the larger obstacle than it is just that a person from another country came in and therefore it didn't work. Yeah, and maybe that's why, Taylor, in Condomol and South America, you might see in the Copper America some um, foreign managers doing a little better, perhaps. Uh, perhaps, yeah. I, mean, I think our Argentine managers tend to have some success uh, in other countries for sure. Indeed. Uh, Graham, what do you think about this? Because, I mean, I'll reiterate, the point of international soccer is Mm -hmm. that, you know, people are representing their own countries. There is, I don't particularly love it, but there's a jingoistic nature to international soccer, isn't there? So what's the point of it if you have someone who's not from that country leading the charge? Yeah, so I think think you must be reading from my notes because my my, uh, (laughs) initial reaction to this question was, Nah, I like it the way I like it the way it is, where you can have foreign managers. I am always an advocate. I mean, Scotland are pretty happy with our manager at the moment, but in the past, I've always been an advocate of why would we limit our talent pool? Let's go out and get someone from another country who's maybe better than what we have um, in the the country's own talent pool at the moment. But then, the more I thought about it, and the more I th- I thought, well, what is the purpose of international football? And as you say. If the point of a national team is meant to be a like a true reflection of the of the quality of soccer in that country, then surely the manager and his or her coaching staff is is a a big part of that as well. Mm. So I think it could get a little bit messy where you've got kind of maybe people who identify as as like as another nationality, and so you know Owen Coyle was born in Scotland, represented Republic of Ireland as a player. You know, how do you deal with that? Like, is he cap tied, as as uh, Cigar put it in his question, to Ireland, or can he then coach Scotland? That that's where it gets a little bit messy. Um, but yeah, I I do see where you're coming from, Ryan. In that, if international soccer is meant to be a reflection of a country's quality, then the manager's a big part of that. But what? that doesn't necessarily mean I would agree with that change because I, I, as a fan, I can't deny that having an improved product, which I believe having a bigger talent pool of coaches and managers contributes to is appealing to me. And then also things like, I, I believe the ability to hire a foreign manager probably helps the upward mobility of smaller nations yeah. as well, who maybe don't have so many coaches to choose from. So I've, I've kind of got mixed thoughts on it. Joe, All right. Joe, I'll, I'll put a, a scenario to you. Let's say the United States men's national team hires a foreign manager. Let's say he's he's German and he's won the World Cup as a player or something like that. Would you, would you stand for that? What would you think of that? <laughs> oh, Ryan, you might be thinking of a particular situation that's happened perhaps in the past. I Who don't knows? think so. No. Um, I I am also. I'm also won the Euros in England as well. Right. Just right. To- Rub that in. I'm going to completely disregard anyway. your scenario, Ryan, and instead just share my thoughts on this. I, I honestly don't know where I come down. I had a very similar reaction to Graham where at first I thought, yeah, I, I think it's good how it is now. We don't really need to mess with it. But I've sort of been swayed a little bit towards the, man, this could actually be a good idea that might help further my own interest in international soccer. I really like – and the biggest reason why I'm interested in this idea is I like incentivizing – Countries, developing soccer countries, of of which I would count the U.S. as one, I like incentivizing those countries 
to invest in coaching education, right? That's that's a that's a difference between the coaching yeah. side of international soccer and the playing side of international soccer. Every country has a real stake right now with how the system is constructed in developing players that they want to succeed at the international level. Yeah, you can live off dual nationals to an extent and rely on other countries to do some of that development, and the U.S. does that, and as do countries all around the world. But there's not the same incentive with how the system is structured in in coaching development. And I, I think that's I think it's a missed opportunity for these countries to really have the chance and, and the incentive to dive in and develop coaches. So I would be intrigued to see this this system that Cigar is mentioning here. I'd be intrigued to see it take place if there was real progress that resulted from it on the coaching side. I think we've talked about this before. There's a lack of real high-profile men's American soccer coaches in in the landscape right now, and I think this could help solve that problem because you kind of have to solve that problem if you want to succeed. At the same time, though, I recognize there are real challenges with the finances of this, and I think restricting how coaches can move and, and what jobs they can take when their financial structure is inherently different than how players are compensated, that gets really messy, and I think that... With yeah. the national eligibility stuff, it, it becomes really cumbersome to actually do this. But it's an interesting thought experiment. Maybe there is a way to make this happen. Or really what would make me the happiest is, is if we're, we're equipping countries that are developing to develop coaches better than they can now. When we finish is, this and, podcast, are you guys still going to have time to do the pro-Brexit podcast that you were planning? <laughs> or are you, you going to hold off on that one for Brexit now? means Brexit, Tyler. <laughs> yeah. um, and Ryan, while you're throwing... Uh, Stones at other people's glass houses. You might want to mention the the Fabio Capello 2010 World Cup. How'd that work out? Uh, Sven and Fabio, I wouldn't say. Were... <laughs> oh, Sven! I forgot about Sven. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you, if you wanted to take the real Brexit route, there, Taylor, you could say that they denied an English manager the chance of shining in that position. I'm not. I'm not of that opinion. Yeah, but, uh, I think it's a very interesting conversation. I suppose Taylor. My thought is the next steps of this are it's never going to happen. They're never going to actually enforce this, are they? I mean, you never know. Infantino likes to change it up and try different things. I think, it, to, to Joe's point, if there were like positive developments from it about FIFA saying, we're going to make this a stipulation, but we're also going to uh, supply you with additional funding for coaching clinics and coaching licenses and ways to make this more possible and promote the game and development thereof, that would be wonderful. I just... I foresee a scenario in which if they made that the rule, it would just be like, all right, go figure it out, tiny countries without much infrastructure. It'll be fine. We're going to keep the status quo as it is. Yeah. And and sorry to get in the weeds about it, but employment law would probably be quite oh, yeah. difficult to, to get around. I'm not sure how that would work where you can restrict where you are employing someone from. Uh, that might be, get messy too. Indeed. I was going to make some more Brexit comments there, but I'll hold my lip, Graham, on that one. Uh, <laughs> one final question for this episode uh, from Adam Kiefer. Hey, Adam, how you doing? Uh, similar to Taylor and Graham, I also <laughs> always hear Colin Robinson instead of Callum Robinson. Uh, Adam humbly requests a What We Do in the Shadows starting 11 <laughs> oh boy um i'll say at this point uh joe larry hasn't seen what we do in the shadows it's uh it's on tv Come but on, it's joe. not set on a rectangle <laughs> of grass therefore joe hasn't seen it um so joe <laughs> I, I suggest you maybe spend the next five to ten minutes watching an episode and, and boning up maybe perfect to, to join yep. at the end what do you think i'm on yeah. it i'm googling it right now i'm gonna learn all about this guys Excellent. Uh, a little a little cliff notes for you, Joe. It's an FX mockumentary comedy TV, TV series uh, created by Jermaine Clement, who you'll may know from Flight of the Concords, but maybe you don't, Joe, because it was, it was years <laughs> Joe, ago. No, I think about it. Um, Joe's a Disney guy. Uh, he's the shiny crab in Moana, Joe. He's Moana in Moana, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ah, thank you. That he actually is, is much gotcha, buddy. 
Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> I really don't like that crab, though, just for reference. That I know, he's mean. Yeah, he's, he's good. He's good. Song either. It's a bad song. What? Anyway, we don't even uh, talk about this. One of the best songs, and he's good in the Freezing Cold credits. Take from Joe Lowry. Yeah, yeah, Freezing yeah. You're talking, you're talking about the guy that take. sings Shiny, like I'm Shiny. You like that song? Yes. I love that song. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, this is a problem. Joe, you've said this before. You really don't like this song. <laughs> I, I really... <laughs> this is wait, the second time I've heard this. Yeah, I really don't. And, okay, any, I feel I don't want to steal the what yeah. we do in the Shadow Spotlight here, but we can talk about that later. Yeah, Mo- Moana is top tier. Maybe we'll do a Moana 11 at some point as well. But um, yeah, Joe but, doesn't get to be on it. <laughs> I like the movie, just not... Anyway. Mm, okay, it's fine. Uh, you'd, li- you'd like it a lot more if it had Americans in it, wouldn't you, Joe? Yeah, maybe. maybe. <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! There is a there is a, a movie of what we do in the shadows as well, but this is a TV series we are referring to. It's set on Staten Island, New York. The least good of the boroughs. Come at me, Pete Davidson. I don't mind. Um, I think he would agree with you. <laughs> and he will pretty sure. So I, I'm going to throw some names out there. Maybe Alaska, Taylor, and uh, Graham, if you if you care to join in. I'm going to start with the centre back, the sweeper position, the Lota Mateus in 1999, if you will. Uh, for me, it's Guillermo, or Gizmo, if you will. Um, <laughs> he's a sweeper because, literally, he's a sweeper. He cleans up the mess. He clears yep. the lines of the house in which they live. He digs them out of holes, quite literally. Uh, he's captain material <laughs> for me. He's in control, and certainly we see his control exerted as the series goes on, Taylor. <laughs> that's, that's, that's solid, Ryan. Uh, I had uh, Guillermo Gizmo as my... Holding midfielder who does all the dirty work, uh, who no one really appreciates, but he allows everyone else to do what they want. Nice. Uh, I think Guillermo is the the, the spine of the team. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that that's a great place. If you're putting him as a center back or as a holding midfielder, either one of those uh, works for me. I do love me some Gizmo, I have to say. <laughs> who doesn't? Graham, what you got? So alongside Guillermo, I thought we'd have um, Colin Robinson as a centre-back in contrast to Callum Robinson, who yep. is obviously <laughs> a forward. I can imagine having an energy vampire marking a superstar centre-forward at a corner would be pretty useful. In fact, I'm pretty sure Harry Kane has been playing against energy vampires all season. That Woo! would uh, explain a lot. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, we mentioned sort of that holding midfield position, Taylor. I had a different idea. Um, I went for the best character in the entire series, the person who holds it all together, the glue, uh-huh. Jackie Daytona. I knew that was going to be the answer. <laughs> Regular human bartender Jackie Daytona, owner of yep. Lucky Brews Bar and Grill in Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. I've, he's got that Pirlo vibe to me. He's cool like Pirlo. He's no stranger to hitting the bar, hey, eh? in the bar. Hey. Um, you know, fearless, calm midfield presence. And a direct quote from the show, when you're Jackie Daytona, you can do whatever you want because you change lives. And that's that's the Pirlo role for me, frankly. Is he coaching volleyball in that episode, or is he just a supporter of the local volleyball team? Uh, yeah, does he, he not fund them? Is he not the the owner of the of the local volleyball team? He's yeah, he's a big fan of the Bucks, the, the girls, the girls volleyball team. There um, it is. Yeah, so he, he yeah. that's the problem. He All might right. prefer girls volleyball. Um, I don't know. Oh, any no, any place with the toothpick in his mouth. For yeah. people who have not seen this show, I'm assuming we have lost <laughs> them completely. They yeah. Uh, but I had I had my double pivot midfield of Guillermo doing the kind of quiet, dirty work, and then Colin Robinson man marking and sucking the life out of his opponent, as Graham Graham did. I wasn't quite sure where to put Nandor. I wanted him to be my center back mostly because I wanted to have Laszlo and Nadja together up top. But Nandor the Relentless is not a defender. He is an aggressive attacker. Do you all know why he is called Nandor the Relentless? High press. 
Uh, because he was relentless, I would just never relent, is his exact quote as to why he is called Nando the, the Relentless. But he sounds like a striker who either scores thousands of goals or misses thousands of chances but refuses to quit. So he's either Erling Haaland or Timo Werner. But either way, you will have some success. See, I think he, Cavani's got strong Nando the Relentless yeah. kind of vibes about He him. does seem like ageless, does around he? the pitch. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm just wondering what Joe's doing right now. He's probably like half our audience, like, what is going on right now? But we will, we will push on. We will be relentless as well in this pursuit. Um, I've got another. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with the wings now, if you don't mind. And Taylor, I think you hinted that um, you might put Laszlo up top. I, I'm having him as a right winger because he literally has wings when he shouts back. <laughs> that know? is one of my favorite recurring little jokes of that show is that he always announces he's turning into a yeah. bat and he you know he, he's he's quite the ripper on, on the wing there he can um he, he can move at a furious pace he he literally once admitted he was jack, jack the ripper at one point um <laughs> I, about that. I, I think he could be a great team player uh you know we've seen how he helps out colin robinson but he's also got his individual selfish streak as well i'm not sure he'd work well in a pressing system though because you know he's Seems terribly lazy most of the yeah. time and mm-hmm. distracted. My other wing, my left wing, Graham, I'm going to go for, this is an obscure character, Simon the Devious, uh, who, <laughs> who was played by Nick Kroll in those first two seasons. Oh, He's yeah. uh, a vampire. I think he like lives in the nightclub, the Sassy Cat nightclub or something. In Manhattan. There you go. <laughs> That's right. And he, he, he needs someone tricky on the wing. He's very tricky. He's very devious. And he's also, uh, as you maybe have heard there, Taylor, he's obsessed with Laszlo's hat. Yeah. Um, so maybe... Is he wearing a hat on the pitch? Yeah, well, like, I'm thinking national team caps. He's tra- I'm, I'm transmogrifying that into he, he'll he be really wanting to get those national team caps. He'll be hungry. There'll be like a Lampard-Gerrard rivalry dynamic between him and Laszlo, is my theory, on the wings there. What do you feel, Graham? Yeah, I, I can absolutely see that. I had uh, I had Jeff as my utility man, so I'm putting him at right man, at right back because that seems like where a utility man would go. He's capable of doing any job, capable of living any life. Uh, a right back in one life, uh, a winger in another life, but every match he plays ends with him being decapitated. I believe he was briefly a horse at one point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah, so you can get up and down the up and down all day, uh, no yeah, problem with belly. running. Yeah. <sighs> his only his only major issue, Graham, uh, as Nadja uh, so astutely pointed out, is that his name is Jeff, and her her discussion yes. of the name Jeff is not one that I will say here, but is terrific <laughs> and I'm sure hurtful to all Jeffs out there. Uh, Taylor, I-, I think I've pretty much run out of inspiration here. Are there any more positions for you to cover? I just had uh, Nadja on one side, Laszlo on the other, because I felt like we needed to split them up. I think sometimes when they are apart, it can go disastrously wrong. But I think also it allows them to do sort of their own thing, and sometimes that can be really, really fun. Then when one of them scores, they can come together and celebrate and maybe eat an opponent, and that would be a nice way for them to reconnect. I was thinking Nadja's doll, uh, which contains her spirit, I think could be the manager. Always on the sidelines, always observing, and you know, maybe, (laughs) maybe dictating a few things here and there. What do you think? I like Basically it a lot. Menu. I think I think what we need to do now is submit this to Joe. Joe, your thoughts on all of this? 
I think you guys made Adam really happy by answering that question. <laughs> and, and maybe even, well, I'll say equally importantly, I think you guys had a good time. And that's really the most important thing. Yeah. Even if none of our listeners did, we certainly right. did, Joseph. Right. The friends we made along the way. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. I'm just disappointed we didn't get Wesley Snipes in there somewhere. as uh, Wesley the Daywalker, I feel like, I mean, should be in this team. If he'll ever get better Wi-Fi, which he re- <laughs> refuses to accept that it's his Wi-Fi. That is one of my favorite jokes of that entire series. For people who haven't seen it, the vampiric council is composed entirely that, that's of one of the best scenes oh yeah it's actors who have played vampires and then yeah. there's a casual reference to like is rob here no rob yeah, decided rob to move on it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wanted to leave it behind tom brad no they didn't make it <laughs> but wesley snipes danny trejo evan rachel wood and tilda swinton as the head of the vampiric council is just just outstanding work tilda swinton is probably my manager and my starting everything because tilda swinton is the best indeed graham any more for you sir I just had one more. I wasn't sure what position the Baron would play, but he would definitely be buds with uh, Jack Grealish due to his his love of nights out, and he'd probably be good pals with Harry Maguire as well. He'd be on that lad's holiday to uh, Mykonos, for sure, the Baron. This place is as fun as the plague. Remember the plague, how fun it was? <laughs> I love the Baron. That's another great episode. Oh, the Baron's so good. And has a good relationship with both uh, Nudger and Laszlo, as we've uh, of course, found out as well. Of course. So they have a good working relationship, so to speak. His his name is just Baron. I forgot about that. He's not actually yeah, a Baron. He's just called Baron. That's right. All right. This is this has been far too self-indulgent. But Adam, thank you very much for the question. I think we should maybe actually write out a proper 11 and maybe yeah. d- d- devote some time to this elsewhere. Maybe yep. a, a secret pod somewhere along the lines. But for now, that is our listener question show. Joseph Larry, wake up. You still there? Oh, I'm here. I'm here. Sorry. Was I soaring into <laughs> the mic that loud? Yikes. <laughs> Joe, thank you so much for your uh, contributions here. Of course, Ryan. Taylor Rockwell, pleasure as always. Uh, right back at you, buddy. Thanks for this. Graham Rudman, thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And listener, we'll be back soon. Watch out that feed. Bye now. Bye. Watch out that feed. Bye.